Welcome back to the Martial Arts Mania Podcast. What's up, dude? How you doing? Doing all right, man. Doing... It's funny. So our Sean Kanan episode, people may have noticed that the, the intro was kind of like, more my radio voice. It was like, well, the reason why is Jessica was still sleeping when I recorded it. And so I guess just me kind of trying to be more quiet also became me like suddenly late night DJ voice so uh hence why i sound kind of weird it was like my radio voice we should do we should do a late night uh podcast sometime oh yeah i don't know if we have callers oh yeah and we we could really play like the best smooth jazz music from kung fu movies which people would think wait that's not uh, any connection oh there is because quite often especially during 1970s era kung fu films they would just rip whatever songs were big at that time internationally or specifically America, because who was going to get on their case about the rights to the music when they're making these low budget Kung Fu movies in Southeast Asia? It's like, who are you going to (laughs) sue? So, you know, the Rocky theme is played constantly. uh, And, you know, I was just watching Dynamo the other day, Bruce Lai and like the devil's gun is a song that's played throughout that one as Michael Worth brings up in the commentary. And, uh, you know, Ennio Morricone, his scores like pop up here and there, especially uh, off the top of my head, Hitman in the Hand of Buddha. So, you know, there's <laughs> there's all sorts of uh, great jazz music. But the one uh, country that actually had like original interesting scores that utilize a lot of jazz uh, is Japan, especially a lot of the period kind of samurai martial arts films. I'm not talking yes. like, uh, you know, High art, Seven Samurai, Akira Kurosawa. I'm talking more later, like even, you know, the Sunny Chiba films. And I always forget the genre. What's the kind of like the genre, the period samurai oh. fantasy type? The Oh, wait, the fan. I'm, are you thinking about the Chambara? Well, where it's no, like not Chambara. Just- Chambara, I know, is like, you know, that's Yojimbo. That's any of those. That's kind of I more associate usually with actually being kind of higher art, if anything. It's uh, it, it's like the Menji period or something. I forget. It's They, they made a lot of them in the 70s, early 80s, kind of period set samurai action movies. The Japanese Action Club did a lot of them, like Sunny Chiba, Haruyuki Sonata, like Shogun's Ninja, stuff like that. They would have these very interesting jazz scores that were oh, just they, awesome. They had some great, there were some great jazz scores. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll go back and listen to, to them. And, and what I love is um, there's so much respect for the soundtracks. You'll hear like e- even the, the metal rangers, the space rangers, uh, like the TV shows, they'll come back and they'll have concerts with the original singers still. I'll send okay. you some afterwards. And there's, you know, they're singing this stuff and the audience is going crazy and they're just singing shows from uh, themes from basically kid shows, you know, years later and the audience is, you know, older and, and like rocking out to, to these theme songs. And then they have like big bands playing like the, the theme songs from, from movies. Let's go great. power Rangers. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. You're like, you, you just disgraced me. I quit. I'm talking about real high, high class music here. And you bring up the Power Rangers theme. Well, guess what? Everybody from the 90s remembers that. That in the they Teenage do. Mutant Ninja Turtles theme. I, I was actually singing it the other day, walking down the street. There, nice. there's, this, uh, there's this guy in Venice slash Santa Monica area who has, a, who has an RV. And on the back of it, he has a, a Power Ranger, not a Power Ranger, uh, a Ninja Turtle. Um, like figurine from a toy store. Um, 
anyway. like att- attached to it attached to it yeah nice. the, the rv doesn't seem to move around that much it seems to maybe be the, the home that's, that's not uncommon in the la area in fact when we were living on the border of downtown and echo park right there there was quite a few of those rvs that just never moved <laughs> And I kind of wonder, I'm like, well, how do they not get ticketed all the time? But I guess they probably do and just don't pay the tickets because who's going to come tow that big old son of a gun? Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, uh, how are you doing today? Good, sir. I'm doing great. I, I've been working on our, our little list and it's something we talked about a little while ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, today I reopened the book and I had a lot of fun. Got a little excited about uh, all these bad, bad people. Yes. And so this list, it's funny. I have been the one that's been avoiding it procrastinating about it, not because I didn't want to do it, but because it's just, once again, these top 10 lists, it's really difficult sometimes to put these together. No, not sometimes, every time. <laughs> and it usually comes down to this. It For me personally, it's usually nine out of 10 of them, I'm set. And then there's that 10th spot that's just, who do I put here? Or what do I put here? Or, you know, and I try to only do like, one two-way tie or if it's significant but i guess on that note we should say what we're talking about today yeah we're so today we're, we're discussing the top 10 villains in martial art films and this is not uh married to just hong kong or western cinema right i'll be honest i kept it to just those two i try to dive into the samurai area and it just got a little murky for me totally understandable and I do have one entry from Japanese cinema, so that we will have some inclusivity there. Excellent. Uh, my, my list is actually, now that I look at it, it's kind of uh, pretty half and half, though, Western and Hong Kong cinema. And for me, and we're going to get to this, my number nine spot is the one that all the way up until starting this meeting has changed. And it could be really any of the ones. And as I was joking right before we started recording, I may change it just sitting here as we talk about our honorable mentions in number 10. But uh, today we want to get through these honorable mentions really quick. So uh, I'm ready to do mine super fast. Okay, let's, I I have, I'm I'm sticking to three, but one has a a multiplayer tie. Cool. Mine is more more just people I want to throw out there actually than specific roles. There are a few though. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to Matthias Hughes who's played so many great bad guys, right? Fantastic. Uh, Bolo, you know, he doesn't make my list. Easily could have uh, for Bloodsport, obviously, but I just, you know, and I, I love that role. I like him better as a henchman, uh, specifically. Uh, Huang Jingli, same thing. Maybe the greatest martial arts movie villain, but when going over the individual roles, I'm like, you know, he's just so good at so many villain roles, but, th- you know, there's... N- there's none that I thought was the best villain of, you know, or top 10 villain. Uh, maybe for me, Game of Death 2, his role in that, Chinku or uh, whatever character he plays. Uh, I, Darren Shalavi in Blood Moon, great role. May he rest in peace. Uh, James Tian in Yes, Madam, uh, who's just super creepy. Uh, man, this is the one I keep trying to get Keith Vitale on one of my lists. But Keith Vitale is Robert Sawyer in Super Fights. I just so bad wanted to put him on there. And it, it just, uh, that was one of the number nine ones that was rotating. Uh, Lee Hoi San, Hong Kong actor who's played a bunch of great villain roles. Hark on Fung, uh, may he rest in peace, who, you know, is like the, the classic Hong Kong cinema creepy rapist guy uh, and just has the face of a villain. And his role in Warriors 2, you know, is incredible. 
could have, but it, it, but it, it is just, it's, you know, his reveals in the finale. And I just wanted kind of more for my uh, villains for throughout the whole movie. And uh, yeah, that's it. That's my honorable mentions. There's so many more that could go on there, but once again, we've only got a limited amount of time. Uh, that, that's a really great list. Uh, at least one of those is on my list. Uh, nice. In, in your very difficult nine spot. Um, because 10 is always reserved for ties. So yes. here's my honorable oh. mentions and it's, and my honorable mentions, uh, I, I think you just cast a, a great net and all those people deserve like a little light shine on them for all their extensive work. My number, my number one grouping of honorable mentions uh, are for people who are in movies with martial artists or do martial arts in a movie that isn't a martial art movie, but they have been villains. I think at one point we had to clarify we are doing villains, not henchmen. Correct. Um, so at one, at one point, I think there's going to be a villain on here who had a very, who had a great henchman. Oh but, yeah, most uh, definitely. Uh, so my number one group is for these Western actors who were in movies with martial artists or did some martial arts themselves. Tommy Lee Jones, Henry Silva, Michael Parks, and Craig T. Nelson. This is a grouping of gentlemen who busted out some martial arts or went against the martial artists, Tommy Lee Jones but, and Under Siege. But yeah, and I would count those. I think those would still like, uh, so like even Henry Silva and Above the Law, right? Is that what you're referring well, to? Well, I was actually going to go with uh, um, Ghost Dog with him. Oh. Just, just to be like, oh, I'm edgy. But see, that would be that would be a martial arts movie, I, I think. You know, it's, yeah, so it's going to be, be kind of muddy waters we're in because my number one, is and I'm going to argue it, but you are you are never going to guess my number one. It's going to leave you shocked, but then you're going to appreciate it. Okay, I it, I I've had three number ones, and <laughs> I'm wondering if one of your number ones was my number one. At no, some point. you're. I guarantee you, you're never going to think of who my number one is. I, I like this, uh, yeah. but yeah, Craig T. Nelson busts out martial arts against against. Uh, uh, in action Jackson at the end. And of course, during the middle, I mean, he's brutal with the people he trains with. Well, then that's and, James Liu. He's training with James, yeah. the great James Liu and just like breaks his arm. <laughs> I know he's awful. Yeah. And his, you know, he, he takes his, a uh, blonde hair, a little silver in that movie. He's just, it's great. And then Michael Parks, because in the one uh, movie where Chuck Norris plays in his Western movies, plays like an anti-hero, you have to have someone who is worse than the anti-hero and Michael mm. Parks did that. I mean, he was basically, you know, gonna blow up a child or teenage, you know, the teenage boy to squeeze them cheeks. I mean, it's just awful. You remember when he had the, the bombs underneath Ooh. and then Chuck Norris uh, sets the line back. Spoiler Ooh. alert, very last line of the movie. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just, it's a great, it's a great character, but overall they, they didn't necessarily make my list. Number two, uh, my honorable mentions is Frankie Chan for prodigal son oh and you know what's funny when i was struggling to decide on that number nine i went down to my massive collection downstairs <laughs> in my gym closet where i'm allowed to keep my bookshelf uh and i i stumble across that and i'm like oh you know frankie chan is so good in that but and he's such a good but he, he's not evil enough for me yeah i mean he's he's a spoiled brat yeah. who's had protectors and from that perspective he was in my nine spot but then he dropped to the honorable mention because the real villain was the battle inside of Yun Biao. So I would say, I, I like I'm that. I, I like that. But the, I, 
<laughs> the, the real the real villains i guess you could say were dick way and fat chung the two bodyguards yes but then yeah. you would also kind of say that they're the henchmen because he, exactly. he's exactly. so the, it, there's a lot of gray zone in this one and this is more a coming of age movie so therefore there isn't like that villain mm-hmm. my final honorable mention and this is because of his redeeming quality so i can't put him on the top 10 list as much as i would want to throw him at number one samuel hung for spl that's you know it's funny that one did not pop in my head till this morning and i thought ooh, that would be a, a good entry but then it was kind of I, I don't know why i was really trying to focus on some newer ones to pick one but I, as i said i had nine out of ten of them and you know me i always like to do a dark horse entry or uh and uh, nostalgia plays a huge factor for me and i always admit that and that's just kind of what happened with that spot but i think that's a great honorable mention right there yeah, and I mean, it's again, he, just too much re- redeeming qualities to him. So I, I think we're about to jump into our top 10. Is there any, can you, for me, when I was picking this top 10, it was more like I had to go on like a feeling rather than, oh, this kick, this kicker is definitely the best. Like Gary, is it Gary Daniels or Scott Atkins as our number one or number three kicker? And right. when it comes down to this list, like, was there, was there any like test that you had to put people through or did, was it pure gut? It was pure gut. It's interesting though. Uh, I had a number one that is now number three. My number two, I almost didn't think about till this morning. And I was like, oh my God, how did I forget that actor in that role? But really it's it's funny. Like what I went off was a gut feeling in my head. What do I think of when I think of martial arts movie villains? And those people that popped in my head were the ones I chose just because obviously they're so iconic and ingrained in my memory. I feel there's definitely going to be more recognized ones and people would even argue better ones as i mentioned before like bolo in Bloodsport, of course uh as chong lee is a classic role another honorable mention that i had who was on my list uh and then took off and i didn't want to spoil because you know he might be on your list don't say anything if he is but also billy chow in fist of legend and i just decided you know i was like you know what he's great. The fight scene is what makes that villain role. And he's a great villain, but it was just the fight scene. So for me, there was, there was certain factors. Once I had like this list in my head, I'm like, okay, I want them to be a significant part of the whole movie. Uh, I want them. They don't have to have done martial arts throughout the whole movie. And I even have one that does zero martial arts, but they need to be involved. They need to be, I like the element of them being evil, like really bad guys. Uh, that was just something for me personally. Like, for example, when I thought Frankie Chan, I was like, well, he's not actually that bad of a guy. He's just more the antagonist than, say, a villain, a heinous villain. And so that's kind of what it came down to for me and obviously a huge nostalgia factor, right? Yeah. I, I, I've got two people on my list who I do not think – no, one actually may throw one punch in the movie. Okay. Uh, but they're – they're kind of despicable human beings. And I would, we might, we might, maybe, maybe my non-martial arts one, because he, I just realized it when you said that he throws a few punches in the film, maybe we're, we might have the same guy. Well, we might. And, but my, uh, one guy is just so despicable. He deserves to be way up at the top. And when I first started this list, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to blindside AJ. This guy is going to be number one. And then I just started thinking about, you know, first off, it's charisma. First off, does what would the movie be without this person? Would the movie really exist? Would we remember it? Uh, 
fighting skill does come into play, but it doesn't have to come into play if they've hired a great henchman. Uh, and then, of course, there are two people on this list that I have here because of their resume. Uh, and there are, so I was basically like looking at their resume of all these villains they pay, played. And, and then you picked one? Yeah, picked one right. of of out of those, but because of that, they are on this list. So the resume gets them on the list. Right. And easily, uh, that's why, as I said, like Hong Jing Lee, I just desperately wanted him on there because he's maybe the greatest overall martial arts movie villain. But then I think of like, you know, his, his role as like, say rubber legs or and none of them really in Ching Ku and game of death too. Yeah. But I was like, that's compared to these other guys. I just don't think it's going to work real quick before we get started. And this is super embarrassing, but AJ likes to be extremely transparent I need to go to the restroom because I've been drinking water all day because Sunday was my cheat day and we were treated to incredible Italian food from my parents last night with Italian food comes very, very nice wine. I'm not a big drinker only on the weekends occasionally. Uh, and with that very nice wine came a bit of a hangover. So I've been drinking water all night, all day. First workout today was very rough, but you know what? That's the, that's what it is. So I'm going to go to the restroom real quick. You're not going to go change your list now, are you? No, I'm not going to change my list. I am just going to go pee real quick. So I'll uh, I'll pause and I'll pause and then we'll insert some music uh, at this point. Okay. Okay. So we're we're back. back. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, And as Gavin pointed out, I have a nice big full glass of water because uh, yeah, definitely. You know what? Everyone cuts loose once in a while. I cut loose. And the funny part is really in all honesty, didn't drink that much, just very good wine, right? You know, you have like two glasses of really good wine and it can uh, hit you hard if you're not used to uh, drinking a lot. But now, before we get into the top 10, we kind of have something we discussed before that we were going to talk about real quick. And that for me is one of the most iconic martial arts movie villains that I just could not put on my list simply because of the the cultural practice of this character and it's it's very it's always been inappropriate but extremely outdated uh i'd like to say in this day and age we probably won't see it anymore uh but once again i am i am not big on cancel culture per se or you know erasing things from the the past i think it's good to you know keep things and even watch these films or television programs. And it's a good thing to kind of teach people and bring up like, Hey, look, this is something that we used to think and used to think was okay to do. And that's kind of something my parents did with me when I was growing up and watching like even films from what might be CHC classic Hollywood cinema. My dad would be like, well, you see Andrew, uh, what they're doing there is blah, blah. blah." And obviously we don't do that anymore. And you know, no, no, no. You know what I mean? It's like, it's good to talk about these kind of things. So what we're going to bring up is the character of Tong Po from Kickboxer, which really is one of the greatest martial arts movies villains, extremely iconic. But the role, who is supposed to be a Thai character, is played by actor Michael uh, Cheesy. I don't know. How do you say his last name? Q-I-S-S-I? I think you got it right. And that's right. Part, in, uh, part one and two. And then in four, they've recast him. Right. Uh, and he is a French Moroccan actor. So I believe he is actually of uh, Middle Eastern heritage. But either which way, they they put him in yellow face. And it's not just a matter of, hey, look, I'm here to be a Thai fighter. They really put him in like prosthetics and 
make him a caricature of a very outdated idea of what Asian masculinity is in a sense, right? And so yellow face is never appropriate. It's been done in Hollywood for years. I mean, David Carradine in uh, Kung Fu, who, although they didn't do any prosthetics with him and stuff, the way he portrayed the character, the kind of soft-spoken guru, you know, philosophical type thing is almost in a sense, uh, well, no, not almost, is, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, demeaning, very demeaning. Yeah. Oh, I thought and, you were going to go with cultural appropriation. No, no, well, that's, yeah. it's definitely cultural yeah. appropriation. Jeez, that's a whole other uh, topic. Uh, and once again, because I'm, I, I, there's a huge difference between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation is never acceptable, but it's also not acceptable to label cultural appreciation as cultural appropriation. But that's something yeah. we could talk about another time. I mean, obviously, uh, John Wayne playing Genghis Khan in The Conqueror, Fu Manchu mustache. And I, once, I think, you know, they're trying to play that role really straight but still inappropriate. But at yeah. that time, you know, it was, the idea was that American audiences weren't ready to see a leading Asian. But then there's also very, very terrible roles like Mickey Rooney. In I was wondering how to get Asian. to that one. Yeah, that's like the <laughs> worst, worst, right? That is that is probably the worst. Uh, war- I, don't want, I, I don't want to say like, because there might be roles that we're not thinking of and something has like affected somebody in a particular way, but that is one of the worst on-screen roles of this, of this significant, I mean, there's nothing like it's, it would be embarrassing to watch that in 1950. Right. And it's, it's, I'm I'm surprised it even got on film. Yeah. And the thing is it hits all the criteria for being like, it's demeaning, it's racist, it's insulting. It's, you know, it's uh, demasculinizing and asexualizing the Asian male, which was very commonplace, which is something even in like, as Kwai Chang Kang, the Kung Fu series, people might be like, oh, well, he was a leading Asian character, but, but you know, definitely that asexualized like male. Uh, the role of Tong Po, you know, it's, it's a great evil villain, but and the thing is, the movie Kickboxer inspired a lot of people in the sense of having an appreciation and love for Thai culture and Muay Thai. I mean, you can, me, myself, I was hugely inspired by that movie, as was, I know, Scott Atkins talks about it, right? <laughs> and even, for example, one of my all-time favorite Muay Thai fighters, uh, John Wayne Parr, who has gone on to be a legend in Muay Thai, was directly uh, inspired by that movie. And he actually went to Thailand, went and fought for you know years. He's like a 12-time world champion. He's fought at the King's Birthday, which is like one of the biggest Muay Thai events in Thailand. He was voted best Farang fighter, like best foreign fighter. You know, he learned to speak Thai, like, and you know, he's revered over there uh, and all around the world for uh, his contributions to Muay Thai. And so obviously there's people that have gotten a great amount of inspiration from this film, but I just couldn't put the character on there simply because I, I feel as a practice, yellow face, black face, any sort of portraying another group of people as anything, but 
equal in a sense is just, I just can't stand for that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, and um, I agree with you completely. It, it just, there was no reason. Ultimately, there was no reason to cast Tong Po the way they cast Tong Po. Right. And I'm not and saying I, this as- I think, to be honest with you, it just came down to the fact that Michael Cheesy is uh, a good friend of Jean-Claude Van Damme's. And they yeah. wanted someone that was big and menacing and tall. And, you know, nowadays it would be much easier to cast that role. Right. Uh, but they easily still could have back then. They could have cast Billy Chow. Yeah. I mean, yes, he is Chinese, uh-huh. but uh, he could have easily played uh, a Thai character. Right. But, you know, uh, it's it's still a classic film of martial arts cinema. But that's the reason we can't have Tong Po. And I say we move on to our top 10 list. What do you say? OK, sounds great. Let's do it. Top 10, top 10, top 10. Shall I go or do you want to go You first? go first, my man. You go okay. first. So top 10, I have two people uh, tied for 10th place. As both are Both are on this list because they are fantastic fighters and w- they are key figures in the film. Uh, you might be disappointed with one of the two names here because you might think he should be up higher. Mm. I could un- totally understand that, but they have redeeming qualities. Okay. One, one leads his people and is charismatic and drinks with his men. And the other cares about his mother in, in her retirement home. So I'm speaking of Dick, Dick way and Colin Chu and from, from project a and flashpoint. It's, it's funny. You should say that I was thinking Colin Chu or Colin Cho uh, in flashpoint and I wanted to put him so bad, but for me, it just came down to that. It's just the fight that stuck in my head. So I think this is a yeah. great entry. So keep going, my friend. Yeah. I mean, ultimately like without these characters, l- listen, we're talking, it's obviously it's scripted, but we're talking mm-hmm. Samuel Hung is a huge leading man. Yoon Biao has been a leading man. Jackie Chan is a, was a suit is, was superstar. And the way they wrote Dick way to be such, so villainous, that it took all three of them plus a rug and a grenade to beat him. So based on that alone, he has to be on this list. Uh, but it, but he had the charisma of some of the other top tier uh, villains that come up. Uh, he had the charisma that inspired a lot of people, but he also cared about the people he inspired. He really cared about the fe- his fellow pirates. Uh, Colin Chu, as I mentioned, uh, fantastic fight. He is there throughout the movie. He caused menace. He, he or his men caused menace throughout the entire film. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, he just loved his own mother too much to be a real bad villain. There are other people in film who are just so much more mean than he is. He was, he was a three-dimensional character, which is what makes that final fight so significant, which what is what makes that film so significant. So sometimes a three-dimensional character uh, can make a film more special and, and sometimes it lessens uh, the villain angle. I, I agree. And it's not just his physicality in the role, which obviously the, the action's amazing. His performance is stellar in that film. Speaking of Colin Cho in uh, Flashpoint, he, he embodies this evil villain on one hand, but loyal family man on the other in a sense not family man as in like nuclear wife and kids but his brothers and his mom and you see the passion and anger that stems from that loyalty and love you know even when it comes to his brothers you know spoiler alert being killed right and 
taking care of his mom and so forth. And that presents itself even in the delivery of his dialogue, uh, the emotional content he brings to the role. So I think it's a fantastic choice. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to your top 10, your number 10 tie. All right. Uh, my number 10 tie is, and these two individuals, the reason I have them tied, uh, obviously I think you'll understand, but without them, I mean, they are the prototypes pretty much of the real martial arts movie villains. So I have at a two-way tie, I have Han Yingqie as the big boss in The Big Boss and Shi Qian as Han in Enter the Dragon. And the thing is, they could easily make the list on their own too, but I just felt like I, I, I couldn't put one above the other and they're both so significant. And I was like, you know, it's a perfect number 10. It's a perfect starting point, launching pad for my list. Uh, first of all, Shiken in Enter the Dragon as Han, iconic. Maybe one of the visually most recognized in true Kung Fu movies, villains, right? And I'd say one of, you know, obviously he was dubbed by Key Luke. So that kind of uh, is an element where I guess, because it's essential, Key Luke's voice as Han is one of the most iconic parts of that role, right? Like you have a gratitude. And so I've never watched it dubbed in another language. I think I have a copy somewhere, but that, that kind of takes away from the ability for him to be higher up on his own, but his physical performance in that for, because at that, at that time he would have been in, at least in his mid to late fifties or sixties. And he's still, you know, he gets to fight the end, very physical. He's very evil, very menacing. And it's just kind of enter the dragon is not just one of my favorite Kung Fu movies. It's usually on the list of like my favorite movie of all time. And it was a cultural phenomenon. And he was the villain of that film. And that's why just automatically Han is one of the first things that comes to mind. The three claws, everything. Uh, Han Ying Che and the big boss. First of all, obviously, Bruce Lee's first starring role and kind of the launching pad for Bruce Lee's uh, adult career. Duh. Uh, the movie's named after him in the English title, right? The big boss. But he's also just a great villain in that role, not just the ending fight, which if anything is slightly more, it has those kind of peaking opera elements. Cause keep in mind, this was Bruce, Bruce's first picture in Hong Kong. He wasn't even cast as the lead originally. They switched him to the lead. So he obviously had a huge influence on the fights, but not a hundred percent control because uh, Han Ying Che was actually the fight choreographer as well. And he came from that peaking opera style background, but just he has this great evil look throughout that whole movie. And once again, a lot of this character for me, the iconic element comes from the English dub of him, you know, with his son and it's kind of a voice and he talks a little like this. Oh. And, but he's just menacing. He's evil. His physicality at the end uh, when he fights Bruce is very believable. He's sick. He's twisted. He's a drug Lord. And it was a great, once again, starting point for the, at that time, relatively new genre of Kung Fu movies. People be like, no, they've been around already for a while. You have to keep in mind, those are more wuxia films, right? This is, Bruce was really the birth of the Kung Fu Pian. Yes, the, the first one would have probably been uh, uh, the Chinese boxer with Jimmy Wong Yu, right? But Bruce is the one that made it worldwide, right? Really kicked it into high gear. 
And it's interesting because even when you look at Hong Yi Che's other roles, even as the villain, I mean, I mean, quite often or not, he was a henchman or he was a side character, but he just does such a great job in this villain role. And that's why I put him on there. And obviously the English dub I'm referring to is the one that most of us have seen. The, uh, I think, 1980 re-release slash VHS release dub. Uh, I've only ever watched the original English dub version, the one that was like not available for like 40 years, uh, like once, which is on the Shout Factory Blu-ray release. They put that one on there. I think those are great choices. Obviously, uh, you, I think your your step your starting point is one step above my my starting point as far as like uh, where you're putting these these actors. Because my number nine is, uh, you might have to help me pronounce it, Shia Kian. As okay. Well. Yeah. And it's 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 for every reason you you stated. It's just his screen presence alone. And if you think about how maniacal he is to get what he wants at all costs. Uh, he uses people, he uses his, his people, he uses everybody, and he's just a master manipulator. And with, without him in that film, there's so many elements that, of course, without Bruce Lee, forget about it. Forget about it. But without him, he's almost equal part uh, on par with Lalo Schifrin's soundtrack. I mean, it is just, it is, uh, it, he's a pillar of the film, and that film is what changed I don't know. I don't want to say the film changed the world, but in many ways oh, it, it kind of did. And a hundred percent did. I mean, Bruce and, Lee changed the world. Yeah. That was the film that made Bruce Lee a household name from yeah. there. You know, uh, there was obviously re-releases of the previous films, but it is enter the dragon. Yeah. So I, I think your number 10, your, where your, your starting point is fantastic. I, uh, I've put uh, Mr. Kian up on the, the ninth spot because just how maniacal he was and how important that film is. And look and, at it this uh, way. They could have, easily for more marketability in the West, try to try to have cast that role with a like Caucasian villain, right? Whether yep. making him Caucasian or doing the unfortunate practice of yellow face. So we should be very thankful that instead they cast a well-known Hong Kong character actor. And obviously because he didn't speak English to having him dubbed by key Luke, I also think was a strategic, fantastic job because once again, the voice is a very iconic part of that character. It's 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 really uh, I don't know. I, I, for me, it's just really it's it's really a fantastic performance. And without him, would I, I? You and I probably believe that Bruce Lee would have broken through to the West at, at one point. But without him in that role as that as that balance as that balancing point, would that have happened? I think possibly, but I don't know. And then on top of that, it's just, uh, um, it kind of goes to the conversation we were just having about Tong Po. This was 1976 when he was cast. And in what year was uh, 1988, 83? We're talking about Enter the Dragon? No, no, we're talking about, uh, oh, 73 was Enter the Dragon, but uh, Kickboxer was what year? 1988-ish? Nine. 89, yeah. So you're talking about 16 years later, and still they're getting the casting wrong in Western cinema. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they didn't, point, they didn't yeah. learn from this. So they're, they're, you know, anyway, so that's my number nine. Cool. Uh, my number nine. So this is kind of my dark horse entry in a sense, or my major nostalgia one, definitely uh, probably my most over the top entry in the sense of what you would think of kind of over the top and, or slightly 
cheesy villain role. But for me, and I may be pronouncing the, the first name wrong, but uh, Rian Hunter as Franco in No Retreat, No Surrender 3, Blood Brothers. <laughs> and it's funny because, so number nine was going back and forth. I had uh, Lock, uh, Lockhart Wing from Skinny Tiger, Fatty Dragon in there. Mm-hmm. And I, oh, I was so close because it's such a good role. But then I was like, AJ, in your heart, which one do you really feel it is? Because I thought, oh, it'd be better for me to put Lockhart Wing because he's such an iconic Hong Kong actor and that role is so good and it'd be totally deserving. But I was like, you know what? No. And I'll, uh, Keith Vitale as Robert Sawyer was going in on that role. But I was like, you know what? I love No Retreat, No Surrender 3. I've said it multiple times. It's maybe my favorite American-made martial arts movie. It's just it epitomizes the eighties action. And he is such a good character in that movie. Cause you have no idea, like really what he's supposed to be <laughs> or who he's supposed <laughs> to be. He never changes his outfit. He has the most amazing, like bleach white mullet and beard. Mm-hmm. He, his, his speech patterns and his voice. It's like, is that supposed to be an accent or, you know, because they're this secret, I think like uh, communist Russian group trying to overthrow the government, but I'm not sure if, because they constantly refer to each other as comrades and, you know, but it's never quite clear who they represent the organization. I think is what they say. Uh, the all white outfit that he never changes out of until the very end where he takes off his jacket. He's got incredible martial arts abilities that uh, if I'm not mistaken, we don't see till the end but he's a bad mother. And I don't know if in real life he really was because they obviously (laughs) double him a lot in the fight. So I don't know if he was a real martial artist, but he does an amazing job pulling everything off. Not not when he's being doubled. I mean, everyone gets doubled. Uh, Even the top Hong Kong people get doubled, but, uh, and he has kick-ass throwing darts. He's just super evil. His acting performance is over the top. We get great, you know, maniacal laughs from him. (laughs) Yeah, uh, and yeah, he's just. I, I just always think of Franco and No Retreat, No Surrender. When I think of just movie villains in general, and this is a huge nostalgia one for me. But I, I love it. It's a great representation of being over the top and fun and going all in on a role. And I think it also epitomizes that era of. American martial arts cinema specifically, and a lot of these over-the-top villains. But in this case, it's not like, oh my God, it's so bad, it's good. It's just, oh my God, it's just good. And I love this. This is a fantastic entry. I totally overlooked uh, this entry, overlooked the film. And it was wrong of me to do that because this performance is one of the reasons, and there's another film on this list for me, this performance is one of the reasons the film is so nostalgic and is so fun to watch. Uh, so great, really, really great choice. Thank you. All right. So uh, we are now at number eight. My number eight. So this is, so you were having issues with number nine. I was having issues with number eight. Got and, it. you know, so we're, we're like, uh, I'm not, I don't regret my 10th entry at all. I, I love that entry. But uh, my number eight is uh, Fung Hak Ong from Warriors 2. On my honorables, on my honorable mention list, yeah. The guy's just he. Okay, we have we have some villains here. We we got we got we all got some villains here, and uh, the only thing I regret is the voice I just did. Uh, We got some villains here, Doug. 
We got villains. This guy is one of the first in the timeline that goes almost full creep. He he's he just can't, he is just so creepy. And for me, I cannot forget his praying mantis. Oh. I wanted to I wanted to learn praying mantis kung fu because of this. Although I'm like, but that means am I like <laughs> like this bad guy? So I mentioned maniacal laugh. Anybody can do a maniacal laugh, whether it's good or not is another question, but really anyone can do a, (laughs) what not everybody can do is a maniacal face slash maniacal (laughs) smile. And he embodies that. Yes, he has prosthetics and stuff in this role and extra makeup, but even in his non uh, makeup covered roles, he just has the ultimate like maniacal face because it's like that happy evil like <laughs> and in this role especially when he's doing that praying mantis uh part at the end when you like spoiler alert he's not an old man so for the almost the entire movie he's an old man makeup we find out at the end oh shit he's actually a young praying mantis master and he's just that, that smile on his face it like goes ear to ear it's 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 worth it, it it's on the same level as Jack Nicholson in the first Batman film. Yeah. And, and what I like is, is much like my number to 10 entry with uh, Dick way needing multiple people to, to beat him. I mean, you're talking about Samuel Hung and uh, uh, come on. Uh, Conan. Who's the, who's the ultimate lover. Yes. Cass. Uh, Casanova, Casanova Wong. There you uh, go. Thank you. I was going Conan for some reason. Casanova Wong taking them both to the limit. I mean, of course, I understand this is all scripted. This is all choreographed, but I mean, it is just a fantastic fight scene. And he is just so sleazy and creepy as a villain. Uh, I, I wanted to put him above some of the people who are non-fighters on my list. I didn't because they're, they're creepier. Question. Is that final kick by Casanova Wong wire assisted or not? That I've always wondered because it you think wire assisted, but then when you look at it and kind of think physics, you're like, well, a wire assisted would have actually been hard in that space to pull that off. And he was such a phenomenal aerial kicker. If that's a non-wire assisted kick, it could be like one of the greatest film kicks of all time. You know which one I'm talking about? I know exactly which one you're talking about. Uh, I'm actually like, I have it pulled up and I'm watching it right now and i don't know i don't know hey there's one way to find out we've got to get a hold of kasafa yes casanova wong and ask him he's he's still like i found him on instagram he he has like this long white hair now and he still seems to practice so it's possible we can find him off to korea we go let's do it okay your number eight. My number eight. So here we go. This is my entry from Japanese cinema, from 1970s karate cinema. Uh, I think this individual could be even higher. He could be on people's number one. This is a sleeper entry. You know, people sleep on this this whole series and stuff. But my number eight is Masashi Milton. I guess he has an English name. Masashi Milton Ishibashi as Tateki Shikimbaru a.k.a. Junjo in The Street Fighter and The Street Fighter or Revenge of the Street Fighter. Fantastic. Or Return of the Street Fighter, sorry. 
<laughs> yeah. Street Fighter's Fantastic. Last Revenge yeah. is the third one. So the first two Street Fighter films, he plays Junjo. And well, I heard a, a honk. Uh, <laughs> so the character of Junjo, first of all, evil SOB, right? He epitomizes like Fung Harkon, he has that evil face, that grimace. Complete opposite in the sense of he never smiles, but he he has, as I said, a face for radio, right? He has, you could not see this guy playing a good guy ever. Uh, and no matter how they dress him up in Japanese cinema, you know, we saw him with mustaches. We saw him as like a Western bandit, I think, in one of the Sister Street Fighter movies, like a cowboy type thing. He just looks evil no matter what. But this is his most straightforward role I feel like he ever got to do with Junjo in the first two Street Fighter films. And first of all, just as I said, evil. He's got that villain look. He is a killer because that's like what he does. He's an old school Okinawan karate fighter. And to add to all that, his martial arts performance is phenomenal. And what it is, is it is one of the best displays of like traditional Okinawan karate really on screen. Like when you watch him even performing his kata in the prison cell at the beginning and the way you see the structure of his hands and his fingers, I know it's little things like that. If this dude was faking it, then he's the best of all time. And there's just no information on him that I can find online really. I need to go back and watch some of the special features of maybe Sister Street Fighter or the Street Fighter and see if Sonny Chiba in his interview talks about him at all. But I, I'm 90% positive, 99 I should say, that he's a real martial artist. And I want to say maybe even Gojo Ru because he does like the Sanchin Kata type breathing stuff in that <laughs> sequence. And like just the way he stomps the ground. And remember in Japanese cinema, it was sync sound. So we're hearing, if you're watching uh, the Japanese dub, you're hearing him actually do this stuff. So you know it's him and just the structure of his techniques. It is not like a Western style point karate guy. He is old school, kicks, strong punches, more like in comparison to fighters people might know, like a Leota Machida, you know, as opposed to a Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. That's, that's the best comparison I can do. Uh, two fighters that have inspired me tremendously. But he's he's just got such good form, such good power. He's such a good, uh, uh, what, what would you call it? For Terry Sarugi, he is a good, uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the word. Like balance. counterbalance? Counterbalance, there we go. Yeah, yeah. counterbalance uh, for the two of them. And you see Sonny Chiba as Terry Sarugi, this kind of badass ultimate martial arts fighter, but Junjo can hold his own with him, right? And at one point even seems to be beating him because Terry's injured. But, and then when he comes back in the second movie, after having his throat ripped out from in the first one, now we get him with a little voice box thing. And it just makes him even more like classic villain, iconic. Just, you thought you killed me, but you just ripped out my throat. And then he's just out for revenge again. It's like, look, you killed my brother. You killed my sister. You ripped out my throat. And Sonny Chiba gives zero Fs. Terry Sarugi's like, <laughs> he's always looking for a good fight too. And then you also get to see him use Okinawan weaponry, like the size and stuff. So I just think for me, he's my number eight. That's a great, great entry. Um, I think uh, I, I totally, I, I didn't even consider it. 
That's a really great entry. And my the, sleeper, my sleeper. Yeah, entry. it's a, it's a very good sleeper entry because basically you have, you have someone who, uh, who helped really kind of carry that, um, carry that genre. And the fact that they bring him back for a sequel also shows that Sonny Chiba knew that he needed someone of that stature on screen with him. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it, it, nothing, there's nothing. I mean, you, we see a lot of movies of revenge, but rarely do we see movies of revenge with the bad guy seeking revenge against the good guy, yeah. which is kind of a very unique twist. Well, when you have a good guy, quote unquote, good guy like Terry Sarugi, by the third movie, they changed the whole like, I still love it. But the first two films, he's he's almost like the epitome of the antihero. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, but Absolutely. even he might not even be an antihero. He might just be a really bad person. <laughs> but anyways, uh, yeah, so it's my number eight. So now you're number seven, homie. Okay, so my number seven, and I've been flipping six and seven, six and seven, but I'm going to go with, this is my number seven, uh, Ben Garza from Roadhouse. Oh, didn't even think of Roadhouse. Well, he was my number six. Wow. So I've, I've dropped him down to seven, but I mean, obviously, you know, if he needed, if he needed muscle, he just called his uh, friend Marshall Teague and Marshall, Marshall Teague, Teague with, with yeah. full joy took care of anything he needed to have taken care of. Uh, when he Man. didn't want muscle, he would just take a, a truck and run it right through, right through, uh, Brad, a mother and Wesley, Brad, yeah. mother. Cause people like Brad Wesley think they can just take and take. take. Yeah. And the man. whole day he's so without, so he has a fantastic film resume and for him to, uh, uh, for him to be in a martial, this is a martial arts film mm-hmm. by in my, my interpretation. There's no oh, doubt about it. hundred percent. hundred percent. For him to, to take the heavy as a mar, uh, in a martial arts film and, you, without him, sure they could. They, they that part could have been recast, but no, he was just he was he was just on this side of sociopath, just on this side of psycho. And you know, his eyes were like when he's driving down the road, and uh, you know, going back and forth. Life would be a dream. Oh, that sequence back, right there! You're just like this guy is he's off crazy. his rocker, and he doesn't care. He doesn't and, care. And he believes that he he has carried this town on his own. He believes that he is the good guy. Everybody else, just get a, just listen to what I'm doing or get out of the way. You want to talk about entitlement? Right yeah. there, that fella. Yeah, when so I came when I came here after Korea, this town had nothing. I brought I brought JC Penny in the mall. You all owe me. <laughs> yeah, that's a great. I can't believe you forgot him right? when you can do his voice like that. Well. The, Okay, so then this was your, your one where you're talking about where you threw a few punches. The funny part is, and I love your entry here for like a non-fighting villain per se, and mine because this it's like you said, Bengazar never goes over the top. He keeps that cool the whole time and is just, as you said, sociopathic, psychopathic villain. My one I have that's going to be up in a few definitely goes over the top so they're like a great contrast yeah that that person might be on my list as well because oh. that that's I, i've been moving this other person around this other person has been at one and been down to seven and up okay. again because i'm but yeah as far as ben garza goes he he brings he to release a martial arts movie in american cinema mm-hmm. you needed 
someone like Patrick Swayze and you also needed Ben Garza because all of a sudden it's not, it's, it's the format that everyone else followed in American cinema, whether it's like even on deadly ground with Seagal and Michael Caine, but these, this was the original and it was believable, even though if you think about it, the FBI would be, would be in on this town shutting this business down but maybe well remember they even said i know a guy at the fbi and then yeah. they destroy his car lot sensei benny's there watching that scene yeah and let's forget they could not have done the movie also without sam elliott oh yeah come on i love you if, if, we, if we ever if we ever do a, a top 10 list of of partners oh yeah he's got well, if he's not number one what is he number he two might be the top 10 list of mentors too right Oh yeah. He's like, you taught me just as much as I ever taught you, but we, we need to do a whole episode on roadhouse, but we got to bring somebody on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh man. I love people. I think I've mentioned it before, but I love roadhouse roadhouse, you know, is I was just the other day talking with, uh, Bruce Willow from the Bruce Willow, uh, podcast Podcast. show that he does on YouTube. Fantastic stunt man, uh, fitness guru, incredible martial artist etc etc and he and i were chatting he happened to ask me like what are my favorite 80s action movies and i said i gave him a list of five i said and you know roadhouse is on there i love roadhouse but i digress uh, any other thoughts on that character no I'm, I'm i'm ready for uh for your number seven right in my number seven I, i'm not really going to talk much about it it's a extremely nostalgic one for me it's one of the very first kung fu like traditional old school kung fu movies i ever saw and i think that's why the villain just stuck in my head and I think it's a great villain. He's truly evil. Uh, the counterperformance by Jackie Chan also helps accentuate this character's true evil nature. And so it's Yen Shi Quan or Yen Shi Quan uh, as uh, I, I believe it's Yam Tin Fa is the the Chinese name from uh, Fearless Hyena. And it's a great choice. Extremely menacing. The uh, outfit they give him, like the whole makeup, the the pretty much the hair and beard is perfect. Uh, slicked back, super long. And the English dub from I, the original English dub is the one I grew up watching. And once again, it's part of the thing where the dubbing is just as iconic as the visual elements of the character because he does a great physical performance. He's menacing he's totally believable when uh you know he fights james tian kills james tian when he fights eagle han at the beginning kills eagle han and then his fight with jackie at the end he just seems extremely powerful so the physicality is there but that english dub also just helps add to it you know what i mean like we must find the unicorn and then when he's fighting Jackie at the end and Jackie starts using emotional Kung Fu, <laughs> baby it's just one of those classic English dubbed voice. <laughs> it just, it's stuck in my head after all these years. Right. And I have trouble. I have, you know, a crystal clear DVD version of it that I picked up in Hong Kong, but obviously doesn't have the English dub uh, for a while on prime, the English dub versions on there, but it's a really crappy copy. And so there was the Chinese version available for a while, I think on the Haya app. And it's just, isn't the same for me because I love to see his evil voice. Like, I respect you. Tell me where the unicorn is and I will let you live. It's just this classic example of dubbing. Uh, All those elements, as I said, are also extremely important. His physical performance, uh, 
the evil menacing glare he gives is awesome. You totally believe it. He would go on to play many iconic villain roles, uh, some good guy roles like Dance the Drunk Mantis. Uh, he would kind of have a career resurgence in the early 90s in Once Upon a Time in China and then Iron Monkey, which Iron Monkey could have easily been on this list. His role in that film, uh, once again, great hair and makeup, the long eyebrows, the long beard, bald head that time. He's just truly evil in that one, too. Uh, but in this one, it's like he's just a man on a mission. He is out to kill anybody from uh, the opposing clan, including Jackie's grandpa and the unicorn. Right. And yeah, that's uh, why it's my number seven. Great choice. Uh, You you know what I, you know what I like about our list is, um, you know, usually when it's, we're, we're, we're like going to a point where we're starting to see mirrored names, Mm -hmm. we're not necessarily seeing that. And it's just because like our own experience, again, like picking villains is is kind of an emotional uh, choice. And like I, my next one, I really, really wanted to have him at the top. Uh, so I'm just going to say it. it's uh, Richard Norton as my number six. Okay. Which um, Richard Norton role? Because I, I should have, I should have said an honorable Richard Norton part, but I knew you were going to have him on some point on here. He yeah. has a lot of great roles. I wanted to put Karov from magic crystal or whatever on there, mm-hmm. but just mm-hmm. because of his physical performance, but which one are you putting on there? Okay. So I'm actually going to put on uh, lady dragon. I knew, I knew it. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you very generously sent me a VHS copy from uh, that you picked up in Japan. And when I was looking on my shelf, I picked that up and I, I laughed because I was like, oh, he, this is going to be on Gavin's list. Yeah. It, you know, it, it's, uh, so he's, there are a few other performances that of his, again, he, he has the resume. He is almost one of the key figures of, he, he's one of the key villains. Uh, he, he's a pillar of villainy. Yeah. Uh, and a villainy is, I think that's a word, but, we could have possibly seen his greatest villain role in Mr. Nice Guy, but producers shut the movie down early. So we didn't get to see that final fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ronald, not Ronald McDonald, Donald McRonald in City Hunter. Yeah. Great role. Great role. So much fun. So much charisma. He is, he is at one of those multiple peaks of his career because he's like a man who's had five or seven peaks. Uh, going head to head with Jackie Chan. Fantastic job but it's a little campy oh yeah for sure um you know and sometimes campy's crazy and he does a little campy crazy but it's still a camp cart uh, animation cartoon live action movie um of course magic crystal but why did i choose lady dragon because subtle insanity Mm, Uh, nice i like that subtle insanity uh, Mm. subtle insanity and you know, he does something terrible to Cynthia Rothrock. Uh, he doesn't remember her, but he had, he also had so subtle insanity plus major charisma. Like when he sees Cynthia Rothrock again, and she's working in his bank, he comes over and he's laying on the, the charisma and, you know, you're like, Oh, Cynthia Rothrock might, uh, you know, you know, she's not going to be tricked, but is, you know, going to play along for a little while. Uh, and he invites her, her over to his house. Uh, the way he beats up the the his the people who train with him, just like uh, Craig T. Nelson, except that he's got skill and he's really dropping his uh, his students, like some of his blocks and like just like he just lays into them. Those stuntmen are still dead. They're there, just dead. Yeah, yeah, they're there. They're yeah. dead. <laughs> uh, it's the scene where he uh, drops the diamonds into the into the pool, and it's funny because when we 
when we first started this podcast, we were trying to catch each other off with different quotes. Mm-hmm. And your quote was baby. And I'm like, I don't know this movie. And oh, I forgot was, about that. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and my quote was from this movie where, have you ever seen anything more beautiful? And that's yeah. when the women are fighting for the diamonds in the pool and they're coming out all bloody, you know, but, and she just looks at him like he's insane because guess what? He is insane. So subtle insanity gets him there. The resume, there's no way he's not going to be on my list, but the subtle insanity of uh, Lady Dragon. And then that, I think, fantastic final fight where they're just exchanging kicks. And I mean, mm-hmm. like his kicks. And, and there, I think there's one scene in this movie where she, she kicks and he like blocks it. And he channels this pure annoyance through his face. Like mm-hmm. he's just annoyed. Like you've just like swatted me and now I'm going to like. I, I know that he's done that in a few movies. I know the logo. Yes. Yes, is that Richard Norton, like, mate, <laughs> yeah. come on. So, so that's my number six. Great, great entry, uh, Richard Norton, one of the best, and he's one of the few that's been would be one of the best heroes and best villains of martial arts cinema, uh, without a doubt. It's it's just too bad he never got the chance to play a hero in Hong Kong cinema. Like, Agreed. you know, like yeah. Cynthia Rothrock got that. Uh-huh. Got she that did chance. both. Yeah, yeah. She mostly did hero, but obviously also did villain in Millionaire's Express. Uh, But, okay, so my number six. This is my one non-martial arts, uh, martial artist entry, right? He does zero martial arts, but throws (laughs) a bunch of punches at the beginning. And I apologize for butchering his name. But once again, I want to say, because I'm pretty sure you do too. Anytime before we do this, I try my best to figure out the pronunciation of people's names. I went and played a YouTube video uh, on how to pronounce it. And I'm probably still going to butcher it, but it is uh, French character actor Checky Cario as Inspector Richard in Kiss of the Dragon. Oh, I had him. I had him. And then I'm like, no, I'm, I'm going to leave him off the list. Uh-uh. I left no, him off the list. Wow. He's, so he is the balancing one I was talking about with Ben Gazzara as Brad Wesley, right? Who never goes yes. over the top. Oh, no. Checky Cario goes way over the top he is one of the most over the top villains in this but done like i don't know how you'd say it as a classically trained actor it's still brilliant acting the whole time but he is the epitome of a psychopath he this goes down as one of my greatest villain roles outside of martial arts or action cinema he is sadistic he is obviously a sociopath he is obviously psychotic he is a police inspector that's also like the biggest drug lord in Paris, he murders people without a second thought. He runs a huge prostitution ring uh, in which he is extremely violent and uh, exploitive of these uh, girls. Obviously, the Bridget Fonda character is forced into prostitution, forced into being kind of like almost a drug mule in a sense, right? Uh, he, there's the whole sequence where they force her to take heroin. And it is just one of the creepiest scenes I've ever seen in any movie. And it's so, he's just so evil in it. And the, the when she's like, uh, oh, I'm trying to think what he said. Uh, uh, oh, and now I'm drawing a blank on the line I always uh, say as he's like, because pretty much she's, she's crying and screaming. They're holding her down. They're about to shoot her up with uh, heroin. And she's like, I wouldn't lie to you. I wouldn't lie to you he's like making fun of her 
And, you know, her voice as she's crying and he's like, like you would with a little kid, like, I don't want to go. And you might be like, oh, I don't want to go. But he does that to her, you know, uh, like, but Richard, I don't want it. I don't want it. You know, and he's holding her daughter hostage so that she'll keep like being a prostitute for him. Uh, he's just, he has no redeeming factors. And the death he receives at the end from Jet Li, spoiler alert, it's called The Kiss of the Dragon. Uh, mm-hmm. I got you. I also got you. What did you do to me? I put needle in very forbidden spot. It's called Kiss of the Dragon. Kiss my ass! And then he literally <laughs> dies from blood leaking out all of his orifices and he's just <laughs> having a seizure. You're like, hell yeah, you deserve that, Inspector Richard. Uh but just uh, maybe uh, the greatest villain role of all time for me. Fantastic entry. The reason he's not on my list is because Ben Garza and the next gentleman is on my list. I just, I just didn't want to have a list of three non-martial artists, but Ben Garza and this next one, they're both in, I won't say campy movies because they're not, there's nothing campy about Roadhouse, but it's an 80s movie. So there is some camp element. Of course. That, you know, t- with time, it becomes campy. But this role, for me, it's one of my, jet- it might be my favorite Jet Li movie, but then I think of Fist of Legend. Right. Um, it's, it's up there. It's the best of his Western ones, for no sure. No doubt about it. And it's, mm-hmm. it is because of where it's shot. It's not shot with Hollywood, like yeah. too much Hollywood influence. It's like, it's all, fr- it's a French production, as I understand it. And you know uh, what? It's very comparable. Yeah, it's, it was a co-production, right? It's a Luc Besson yeah. film, really. We can call it a Luc Besson yeah. film, even if he didn't direct it, he produced it and so forth. His role, Chucky Carrillo's role as Inspector Richard is very comparable to Gary Oldman's role in The Professional. Yes. Very it, it, similar. It, uh, Gary Oldman's role is obviously on drugs the whole time, right? He's a pill popper. This guy is just stone cold crazy on his own yeah it's 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 really he helps keep the film gritty and he he fits into he fits into the the mold of like non-martial artists who's hired great henchmen to to do to be his Mm -hmm. muscle but at the same time unlike some of these other bad guys other villains that we've seen throughout film and even some on our list he's willing to get his hands dirty this guy will do whatever it takes to get the job done Great choice. Great selection. Thank you, my man. Okay, so now we've uh, we've reached the top five. The top five. So I'm going to have to... I just in in the sure. words of Jermaine Jackson, let's get serious. Bum, bum. Let's get serious. So uh, my number five, it was a character, Master Five. Uh, John Shum from Petty Cab Driver. Okay, I knew it was coming. We had we kind of yeah. hinted at this one, and yeah. fantastic entry doesn't make my list, but and now I get it. Like you had two non martial arts entries, and so it makes sense why he, you, he you is. Fit. Yeah, he's. And I, go ahead. He, he's one of the most despicable characters Sleaze. ever on film. Sleaze to the max. He, he, whatever anybody else on this list has done, whatever their one crime is, he's done every single mm-hmm. crime. And there's some people on this list who've done more than one crime. He's done all every crime you can think of. He, he, um, he is just the ultimate sleaze ball. And mm-hmm. he does things on this list that nobody else does. My number, my number 10, Colin Cho, you know, 
fantastic performance. It's a martial arts performance. It should be higher up on this list, except his redeeming quality is he cares about his mother. Master Five, John Chum, who is a comedic actor, all of a sudden turned villain just for this one solo movie. Hates his father, but keeps his father around to rub like how bad of a human being is into his father's face. But not just that, remember, isn't there also an element of the longer his dad lives, supposedly the longer he will live based off a of Chinese superstition and what they've yeah. been told by a fortune teller, right? Yeah. So yeah. he's, <laughs> he, what he does, uh, what he does to uh, uh, one of his former workers, one of mm-hmm. his workers who left to mm-hmm. uh, marry uh, my number 10 on the list, Dick Way. He kills Dick Way, takes the woman back, and then takes the child, the, the, the infant, into servitude. Yeah, she gives birth right there in that scene as they're murdering her husband. Yes, and then they take the child. Uh, he, he uses his bathtub as, as a toilet. Mm-hmm. Not, on, not on screen, but I mean, this is, he's honestly one of the most despicable characters. I almost didn't want to put him on the list because he's so despicable. I didn't want to talk about the things because I don't know who, who, if people have watched this and like now they have to you know, if they haven't watched the film, I have to like describe some of the most despicable yeah. things he's done. I, I had him at number one. I really did. That was going to be my surprise entry at number one. And then I just was like, I, I can't because he, he does go over the top. And, uh, you know, there's some, there's some real, there's some great performance in that that he didn't do a great performance. He, well, he probably used everything, every ounce of his good human decency and poured it into this one role because after this he, he did comedy beforehand and i think he did comedy after but not much after he was, was a political like, activist too and yeah. he actually uh he's one of the founders of one of the theater chains in hong kong like one of the big mm-hmm. movie theater chains and that's kind of i feel like he just went more the business end but the co- the comedic element is what accentuates this role because for me it's like, it's not funny at all what he's doing, but he himself, he is a funny actor. And I feel like it yeah. almost has a little bit too much of that mole tao, like uh, Cantonese comedy aspect to it uh, for me just to make this entry. But that's also why it works because oh, he's, yeah, it's like some points you could be laughing at him, you know, not laughing with him, laughing at yeah. him because he's just that insane and so nasty and disgusting and gross. Not on the same level as say like Cheki Cario, who's like, murdering people and this and that, but it's very suave and sophisticated. This guy is just hygienically disgusting, right? You bring all these extra elements to it. There's, there's nothing, absolutely nothing redeeming about him, but his presence. Yes. Billy Chow's in the film and has one of the greatest fight sequences between he and Samuel Hung in, Mm -hmm. in cinema history. We've discussed this, but he frees up Billy Chow from having to do anything other than being a hired fighter who eats, fried rice before he goes and he tries to kick Samuel Hung's butt. Right. Mm-hmm. And this guy is absolutely creepy. Um, he, and is it he, fried rice or is it noodles? I feel like it was fried rice because when he I was, can't when remember, he was, that's why I'm like, hmm. when he so was some of the guys were definitely out, eating noodles. Eating fried. Yeah. Some guys. So when, when he, uh, you know, when, when Samuel was going after him, he's like, no, 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 it's not me. It's him. He's the one who did that stuff. I didn't do it. And when he's in the street and he's going after uh, uh, Grace, I, I can't pronounce her last name so well. Um, uh, who? Which character? Uh, the love interest of Samuel Hung. Oh, Nina Lee. Hold on. Nina Lee, yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Pedicab driver. Yeah, Nina yes. Lee. Nina yeah. Lee, yes. Sorry, I'm sorry. The, fu- the so future going- Mrs. Jet Li. Yeah. So when he's going after Nina Lee, 
and someone steps in, he's like, no, 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 no. And he has, he has Billy Chow. Like he's always talking his way out of it. You know, he has this, like, he has this, you know, bang, bang Garza had the charisma. This guy has like just the, his way of talking, way of talking his way out of everything. And that's where his comedic acting yeah. uh, chops comes in. So that, that's my number five. And I'm, I'm, you know, it's a, I've described a very disgusting role. It's a fantastic film because, and his presence aids to it being one of the most dramatic Kung Fu films of the 1980s that I, you know, it's one of the films that I recommend people watch because it is such a fantastic film. And while this guy is despicable, it's not, you're not seeing a lot of the stuff on the screen. It's, you know, Samuel Hung just kind of wrote this character or the writers created this character uh, as the ultimate like no redeeming it's like the the opposite the total opposite of we talked about the the martial art way the bushido way the total he's living the opposite lifestyle and exploiting that lifestyle for the people around him mm-hmm. so that's my number five excellent excellent choice uh my number five so now i think you're definitely going to have this person on your list and i'd like to talk about this particular person together so let me uh you know okay so my number five is should i try to guess yes does he have slick back hair does he have a mullet does he have a flat top or does he have a ponytail (laughs) wait so what would this be considered i think it's kind of like a slick back mullet okay okay there's another unique element about his hair at one point in the movie is there oh okay all right he has a tinge of red that is correct. So okay. this is my number five. Where does he come for you? Well, he comes in number four. Oh, okay. So then that we talk about him right now. Let's do it. Okay. My number five and your number four is, and you introduce him. Oh, it, it's none other than Sifu Don Nayam. Yes. I'm hoping as, yeah. Yes. As, as the Stingray. Stingray in Undefeatable. Right. And obviously I had you introduce him because for listeners that don't know, he is your actual Sifu in like Chinese martial arts. I've had the pleasure of training with him once. Incredible uh, athlete, incredible martial artist, incredible trainer. Uh, he's one of those guys, just on a kind of going off on a tangent. He's one of the people that I highly admire for the way they train traditional Chinese martial arts because they train it realistically. He takes it from a personal trainer's perspective as well. You know, the importance of being physically fit, uh, the application of, you know, what he was teaching me and so forth is very applicable in both for sport combat, me who fights Muay Thai. He was teaching me things based around that. And also self-defense wise, uh, from what I, you know, what the little bit I got to work with him and then watching other videos with people. So he's one of those people that's taking this traditional art of Hung Fut, correct? Yes. I have a tendency to mispronounce it, per, mispronounce it perfect. So Hung Fut, and like our friend, you know, Sifu Alex Richter, who is, you know, one of the best Wing Chun instructors I've ever seen. His school's amazing. And he uses traditional Wing Chun, but takes it from a modern approach in the sense of the way they train uh, for physical fitness. And he does not change the curriculum, like adding a lot of Wing Chun schools now add, okay, we're going to learn this martial art, blah, blah. But Sifu Alex goes and learns the martial art so that they can learn how to use Wing Chun to defend against said arts, but not water down the actual art or change it. And I feel like Sifu Don's the same way with his hung foot, right? He, you know, obviously has learned kickboxing and so forth of uh, and is very good at that, but he is teaching Hung Fut 
and traditional Chinese martial arts the way it needs to be in our modern society. Yes. So it, I mean, speaking to his, uh, uh not, um, you, you just, you just said, you just, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm losing the, the thread just a little bit here because I was prepared to talk about stingray, but speaking to his, uh, not compromising way, yes. he has, he, he has a, in the mid nineties, he released uh, a workout video, uh, nitro kick. Yeah. I use it. It is legitimate. Um, he does one thing in there. So there's this reptile turns over and reptile turns over is in the video. It's two. He has two hands going up. You like a curl, twist it over, push out, mm-hmm. grab, pull back. And it's like a lot of pushing and pulling. So that's the only compromise that I, from my understanding that he made, because in Hung Fut, it's one hand, you do the right hand, yep. you push out, that's then you do the me. left hand. Yeah. And that's, that's a one count. So that's a one count. In the video, the one count is both hands at the same time because it's, he's trying to sell it to the American market. But if you go to like other fitness videos, you know, where they're having you work your core and doing punches, you're punching across. Like you're not going to, if, if you're going to try to use this for self-defense, punching across, you know, on, a, on an angle, <laughs> it's not going to go too well for you. But, I missed. <laughs> yeah. But when you're, when you're doing the nitro kick, even, even something that is meant as a cardio workout, he has there's six or eight elements on a two disc on a two disc release and it's just it breaks down every element so he's he's uncompromising because i don't want to call him a perfectionist because i don't think that's fair because a perfectionist just seeks seeks uh the 100% score and then doesn't necessarily grow from that he is always nice. seeking mm-hmm. and he is also concerned about his students so he's not going to put his students in a position to learn something that's been compromised. So, uh, yeah, from, from, yeah. So when you talk about like how he trains and his uncompromising training, that, that just, that's just an example of, of that. So now let's talk about the actual reason we should be talking about him. Not yeah. just what a great instructor he is, but, uh, the role of stingray. Now let's mention something. You and I are, we're both legitimate fans of this film when it either first came out or shortly thereafter, I saw it in the late nineties when it was playing on action max, the Cinemax mm-hmm. action channel. You may have seen it closer when it first came out. We love it as an actual martial arts film. The fight scenes in it are incredible. It's a Hong Kong American co-production shot in America. And he plays this absolutely insane over the top sadistic, almost hypnotic in the sense of it's like he's hypnotized by the trauma that he's gone through and just man on a mission, Stingray. And a few years, I'd say, I should actually say like the beginning of videos on the internet, it gained a whole lot of popularity being posted as like, quote unquote, worst fight ever with him, John Miller, Cynthia Rothrock. And I remember when it like, someone's like, hey, AJ, you love martial arts movies. You got to see this. And they start playing it. I'm like, oh, sweet. This is fucking undefeatable. It's one of my favorite movies. They're like, yeah, but it's just the, the fact that people would even, cause that is what it said, right. On the- yeah, so it's, it's, it's posted, um, and in two forms. So one is worst fight ever and then best fight ever. Right. So, and you know, so peace, so this way, but on YouTube, he started getting a true, the fights are getting a tremendous amount of hits. Yeah. It's the movie itself is a li- can be a little campy. Oh, it's, but- it's, it's definitely campy. We, okay. we can say that we can say that it's campy. You know, we're you- honest. It's, it's a campy film, but it's an, for the era that it was made and it's a Godfrey Ho film, right? It's it, one of it the is. most coherent Godfrey Ho films ever made. 
and, and I, go ahead. Oh no, I would say one of the reasons is one of the most coherent films is you have finally this villain who doesn't just stick to the to the script because I, I don't know, like Godfrey Ho, I don't know how his scripts are. I'm just saying he knows the story and he's sticking to it, and everything else is just shot around him. You take you take uh, Stingray out. Oh my gosh! You take you take Don Nyam out, and the mo- there's a black hole in this movie. It's I'm, I'm not going to say Godfrey Ho movies with Cynthia Rothrop and John Miller and Chuck Jeffries aren't good. We've seen Honor and Glory, and that is a fun popcorn yeah. uh, fest movie. Watch it; you'll enjoy it. But John Miller as the heavy is no Don Nyam as the heavy. Don Don carried Don is like the 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 core of this movie that all, all, uh, what do you call it? Gravity. That gr- the whole movie nice. gravitates towards this. And, uh, Oh, I lost where I was going with this. Okay. So from a technical standpoint, this film is extremely well-made the, the artistic elements. I like the music, the lighting, uh, some of the iconic shots, like when they're standing there with the swords, we've talked about this, the slow motion falling down from the ceiling. Uh, the, the fight scenes are very much of that Hong Kong style, uh, the intensity, the athleticism of the performers, which obviously in that final fight, we get, you know, John Miller all greased up and he's just huge bodybuilder. We've got Don all greased up equally as ripped, more like an athlete, like a performance athlete. Uh, and they're, they're going at it. And yes, it's definitely this macho element to it, right? Nothing different than Arnold Schwarzenegger and commando. Not at all, but what I wanted to say about taking out, I thought this is where you're going, but so this is where I'm going to go with this. So the villain, Stingray. So Stingray is already a sadistic SOB as it is. Like he's violent. He does these underground street fights. He beats and rapes his own wife. And then when she finally leaves him, he has this traumatic episode where he's just in a trance in the rest of the movie trying to find his wife. And so it's like, any any woman that resembles her, he is going to kidnap, violently attack, and rape. And it's very over the top. It's very exploitive. This was the Godfrey mm-hmm. Ho element, which Sifu Don's talked about in interviews and yeah. so forth. You know, and he actually had to tone it down. Like, I'm not going to do that. But yeah, he, th- this is what I'm saying. Take this character, Stingray, out of this film. Put him into, say, like a Silence of the Lambs film. And people are going to be like, oh, that's one of the most iconic villains of all time. Like with, and so no martial arts, right? It's just yeah. like the, the way he plays this character, the performance is fantastic. It's just, there's kind of a lot of those cheesy elements from that era of straight to video that are also in there in a sense, which I feel like takes away from both his great performance. And I really like Cynthia's performance in this one too. I feel like it's one of her strongest, not to take away from yes. John Miller. He just didn't really do as much. Right. But Cynthia Rothrock, this is a great performance from her and Sifu Don. This is a great performance from him because he just plays it so well, that blank expression. And, uh, and obviously the physicality he brings to the role with his martial arts elements. I mean, I love the parking garage fight with what I'd imagine is maybe a TKD guy. The way they yeah. just, man, very, very good. Super evil, super twisted, super sadistic. This is definitely a slightly more over-the-top role because of the film that it's in. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically Norman Bates and a martial arts movie. And probably one of the very few actors in the world 
who could have delivered both the martial arts and an investment being crazy is it's Sifu Don. Right. Sure, there are other actors who could have done that, but also to deal with the camp side of it and working with someone as big as John Miller, like physically big, and also to work with someone as dynamic as Cynthia Rothrock, you needed, you need that. I can't see this movie without him, and without him, this movie would be like uh, just one of the movies we'd look over. Right. And I think anybody that studied acting in any form can tell you the importance of being able to physically emote right? And present emotions without words, you know, and how difficult that can be. And he does that through a, a huge period of this film, just the, the looks he's able to produce, you would think, oh my God, this must be this guy in general. But Sifu Don's a super nice guy. I know. <laughs> you know, so it's like when I finally got to meet him in person, this role for me as a kid was just like this pure evil SOB. And then I meet him in person. I was a little hesitant at first. And then I'm like, oh, he's, He's a down-to-earth cool guy. <laughs> if 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 that episode ever happens, which I'm just you know teasing the audience right now, where we get to talk to Sifu Don, uh, we can talk about what our what our fear was going in for that first impression. Because I mean, is he as like tough as Stingray was? And in many ways, he as a trainer, he is. He'll let you know if you're if you're a centimeter off, a millimeter off, he will let you know. Mm-hmm. And, and but I mean, you know, he's he's really like one of the he's he's a, he's like a true midwest person who's just very caring and giving to to his students do right by him he'll do right by you yes so that was your number five my number four so what's your number four and and are we gonna am i gonna guess hair types okay number yeah four? so my number four uh guess hair type okay your number four i feel like you you said your number one is going to be a surprise. So I might yeah. actually think your number four is, uh, might have some uh, slick back hair. Yes. Not yet? Yes. My number oh, four does number have slick back hair. But now, is his hair long enough to put in to a ponytail? No. Okay. So I have a feeling this might be your number one or your number two. My number four is Yuan, uh, Yuan Hua. As yeah, you almost had hiccup there. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> as the evil boss Hua, I think it's Hua, right? In Dragons Forever. And this was originally, is this your, is this your number three by chance? Or so we're no, talking? No, it's not. Okay, okay. I, I don't so, have him on the list. What, what, what's his name? Yoon Watt? <laughs> and so he's done some great villain roles, fantastic villain roles. Uh, Iceman Cometh, amazing. Uh, Eastern Condors, which was like the tease to this one almost, very much even more comically, like kind of over the top even though there's, it's not funny, that film is not funny at all. His performance is very exaggerated in Eastern Condors. We have, I love his performance in, uh, uh, oh, the Joyce Mina Cadenzi one, uh, She Shoots Straight. Mm-hmm. Yes, where he's playing the, the Vietnamese immigrant, the gun runner, and it's just a very subtle, great villain role. But this, this role, but oh, wait, is it, is it on your list or can we talk yeah, separately? It's, yeah, it's on my list, yeah. Right. Uh, we'll talk separately, though. Uh, that's what we decide we usually do with these. Uh, first of all, from a martial arts perspective, Yuan Wah is fantastic. And his character in this film, you don't know if he's actually going to be able to fight. And he is the caricature of Hong Kong's idea of like what a Western villain would be like. Pinstripe suit. It's definitely oversized. Pencil mustache. Smoking cigars. Slicked back hair. Big black rim glasses. He's, you know 
just this the the opening sequence is it, just the, the the cheesy line of like you promised not to kill me but i didn't he had his henchmen <laughs> shoot him and said right so we don't even know that he's actually an extremely capable fighter till the end till the finale and then he weasels his way in there he's just the weaseliest like villain but very good fighter and then but he's still that little quirky like movements and elements that he brought in the eastern condors role and the best part is he keeps smoking the cigar just like richard norton talks about that samuel hung wanted him to do in mr nice guy right it's like this is their idea of what a westernized villain would be like in a sense but he's just you know pure evil he's all about the money uh it's just an iconic role when you think of hong kong cinema bad guys I think for a lot of people, Yuan Wan Dragons Forever is the first one that comes to their mind. And for me, it's a similar thing. And just uh, the physical performance is just ingrained in my mind. The way he moves, the way he slides down the stairs like that. He's so cool. Adjusts his tie, smokes his cigar, you know, uh, attacks Jackie from behind while he's fighting Benny the Jet, right? Like, and, you know, uh, I forget what he says in the original English dub, probably calls him a bastard, but in Cantonese, Pokaya! You know, like you bastard. And then he runs away. And then when he fights Samo and, and then he gets drugged and, hoo, 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 and then he dies. It's just, it's just an extremely iconic role. Physically, he brings a great performance. Visually, you never forget that look. And Yuen Hua is one of the unsung heroes of Hong Kong cinema. And that's why he is on my list well it, it's it, yeah he, well he's on my list as well and we, we're going to talk specifically about this role uh in a, in a little bit cool um i've had problems with my number two and three uh i think i told you like when when you first texted that you were running late for the program i was like like moving things <laughs> all around and the two and three um i'm gonna go with do you want to guess what type of hair my number three okay. has uh slick back ponytail there you go. Okay. So, and he could be your number one or two, or you might not even be on the list. I he's going to be, list. he's going to be my, uh, well, I'm not going to tell you, but go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah. So Terry silver, silver method, uh, karate. It just, uh, quick silver method, quick silver, quick silver. There you go. Silver method. Um, it's just, so again, you take Dawn out of, uh, undefeatable, there's just a black hole in the movie without Terry silver in karate kid three. Does that film work? I mean, obviously Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I will say it. No. Yeah. He, he, uh, does, I think the year it came out is right around the time that Batman came out, like the Tim Burton Batman. 89. Came out. 89. 89. So it's mm-hmm. just, it's, uh, I don't know. It is one of the biggest, villainous villain roles in American martial arts cinema ever. And he carries it. And if you think about the back, the, you know, the, the people that came before him in Karate Kid one and two, we could have argued that either one of them could have made it onto this list. Legitimately Martin Cove, great performance that he sustained for multiple years, but nobody is as two faced, triple faced, quadruple faced. Yeah. The way he talks to his friend, uh, um, crease, you know, you, you know, this is yours. I've always, I don't, don't give me back the keys. I've got you. And then he hires the bad boy of karate previous guest, Sean Cannon to come in. Uh, and he promises him 50% of Cobra Kai. So like, 
which which person is he like being honest to? He's dumping he's dumping chemicals into the he's he's doing Michael Caine from On Deadly Ground. There you go. Uh, in this without having and I mean he's totally over the top, but I mean without having to have the good guy right there in his face about it. He's he what is great about uh Terry Silver's character in Karate Kid 3, which is probably what makes him arguably, obviously in my case, three, one, two, or three of all-time villains in martial art films, is this is just a pet project for him. He's just playing. Yeah. This is just for his enjoyment. For he kicks, is taking, man. Yeah. He's just taking like a really nice, you know, kid from New Jersey who's now training with with Mr. Miyagi and turns him, turns him into like a hurting machine. He's too he, good at it. It's like you're watching. It's like, this isn't his first time doing this. Yeah, he knows what he's doing. This, no, this truck isn't poor enough. I need, ah, that works. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's, he, this is just a pet project. This is just for fun. He puts his chemical dump company on hold or he has it, he has it running. He's, he, uh, I, I don't know what to say. Like, I know he's going to be on the list. So we're probably going to talk a little, your list. I'm presuming. So we're going to talk a little bit more about mm-hmm. him. And in a, in a moment or two. So I'm going to pause for here, but I, I just, for me, for so many of these other villains, they were so invested in the outcome uh, for their own business purposes, for their, you know, for controlling the town, yeah. for, uh, uh, for just for, for whatever reason, he had no reason to be involved. Cobra yeah. Kai was closing. And this he's was like, purely no. for kicks, yes, and loyalty, yeah, to John Kreese. And but is he fully really that loyal? If he's like promising to give up the business to some karate kid off the karate kid, you know, to Mike Barnes off the street, like I know he's not off the street, but he's you know, I think so because because really I, he's I, he's already he's yeah. Well, we'll get more to that. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was my number three. Your number two either has a ponytail or. We're on my number three. My though. guess. Or you're on number three. So ponytail or flat top, or I don't know. Mm. You don't know that you don't you might not have a flat top on yours. No. In which case I, you're gonna I mean, be disappointed I think, when I mention I don't mine. think I don't think you would call this a flat top. Uh let me see. Maybe as maybe it's, it's a grown-in flat top. I don't know. The only main flat top I think of in martial arts cinema is like Eddie Coe always had a grown-in flat top. Uh Well, okay. So, yeah, are you are, might not be a flat are you ready for my number three? This I is the am, one yeah. I didn't think of until this morning, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" And so, obviously, you see, he jumped to two, then down to three. My number three is, oops, uh, let me just oops, make sure you know, oops, yes, oops, is Melvin Wong as Superintendent yeah. Wong in Writing Wrongs. He, he was, so he was going between two and three for me. He was going right. between Terry Silver and Melvin Wong for me. And Same I, I was here. picturing that, him as like a flat top. Yeah, well, that's so. what I said. It, it could possibly be considered a flat top. And they went back and forth for me. So really, we're going to be talking about Melvin Wong and uh, Thomas Ian Griffith here for a minute. So yeah, first of all, Melvin Wong constantly played characters named Inspector Wong. Uh, yes, madam, he's an Inspector Wong. Heart of Dragon, he's an Inspector Wong. Uh, is it Lady Reporter? He's an Inspector Wong. He's, you know, he constantly played this kind of good guy, inspector character, just named Wong. Uh, very clean cut, very straightforward. 
And then so in this film, they bring this actor that's, you know, been playing this kind of established role of I'm just your police captain. And for the first part of the film, that's what you believe. You believe he plays it just so straightforward and serious. And this is your number uh, two. My number two. So we can talk about this together. So, you know, plays it the same thing by the book, straightforward, formal, clean cut. And then for somebody watching this for the first time, it's out of nowhere. It's just revealed. Like there's no hints at it. There's no suspecting of it. You wouldn't believe it unless you saw the trailer first. Suddenly he is the head villain. And he goes from being this ultra clean cut, kind of happy looking police captain guy to murdering one of the drug lords that works for him with a hidden knife and a cigar pipe and just brutally kills this dude. Then puts said cigar pipe back in his own mouth and just walks off. And so Mm -hmm. therefore we get this like Terry Silver, this double role that Melvin Wong had to perform in this movie. He's playing the good clean cut captain, which he does from that point forward still like Cynthia Rothrock doesn't even believe he's a bad guy. Right. And then also the sadistic evil villain. And so it's playing these two different roles. And, but when he plays the sadistic villain, he's not a, as over the top or even exaggerated craziness as say like Thomas Ian Griffith as Terry Silver, right? He is much more just kind of like, this is what I do and I'm evil as shit. And it just works brilliantly. And also the physical transformation he went in for this role. And it's, he's just ripped as hell. And I believe it's, it's commonly stated that he trained with Bolo for this movie, but I believe it was actually Eddie Mayer who was another fitness guy in the eighties, who was also in a bunch of martial arts films, particularly the DMB ones, uh, like a free fighting champion guy. I believe he was the one that actually trained him either which way he packed on a bunch of lean muscle. Like he is ripped, which you don't see until the end. And you get to see him have this phenomenal fight scene with you and Bial that we've talked about before. And he, it depends on which version you watch. He brutally murders anyone gets in his way, even if he's had a close relationship with them, like Cynthia Rothrock, right? Uh, he murders a child or a teenager, you should say, women. It doesn't matter. And so obviously he's just a pure sociopath. And so, I think this film also is huge nostalgia for me, a very influential movie for me, obviously for more reasons than one. But yeah, that's why Melvin Wong is my number three. Uh, and, and the reason he's my number two over Terry Silver is one scene in particular. I've, I've been running the movies through in my head for a little while. And do you remember the scene after he kills Corey Yoon? Oh, yeah. Oh, and he yeah. Comes out and exactly. He sees, he sees Corey Yoon's father, played by Wu Ma, and he touches him on the shoulder and basically says, I'm so sorry for your loss. Whatever you need. Uh, let us know. Basically, that whole that line that cops, you know, they always say to the family members. Yeah, it's like he died a hero, right? And I think even I think you know the way Corian shoots this. Of course, is probably going to be this, literally probably the same hand that he killed Corian with is the hand that he's touching the father with. And that moment right there, that's like, oh, you know what? He's definitely two. Terry Silver's three. Uh, that's right. He also kills the old grandpa. So old people too. No one is safe from Inspector d- Wong. D- isn't. Am I not mistaken that the only, yeah, you're right. He kills the old, old grandpa, then he kills Corey Yoon, right? Right after yeah. that. I think the only person who is alive at the end of this movie in the version that I prefer, right. I believe, is the, is the true 
artistic version is Wu Ma. Yeah, yeah, he's he's the only Every, one that survives of that principal character. Yeah, and the way he kills Cynthia Rothrock is just so like trusting heart, and he just runs this like I don't know what kind of tool that is. It's like, and he just it's like, like corkscrew. It's for yeah. a giant's bottle of wine. Yeah, and he just puts sticks it in her and then screws it, and and you know, you and Biao's like, even the people who believed in you, you've killed. But he exactly. even makes sure to take off the helmet or whatever he's wearing so that Cynthia Rothrock knows it's him, too. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, yeah, I'm going to kill you now. Bye. Yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's uh, again, it's, I wouldn't even call it, like, subtle insanity. It is just, because it, his actions are insane. He's technically probably, in, in this day and age, would have been, would have been, uh, they would have um, diagnosed him as bipolar. I don't know. Um I'm interested to know who your number one is, but I think we should talk about uh, your number two first, which is Terry. So Silver. obviously my number two is Thomas, e- Thomas Ian Griffith as Terry Silver in Karate Kid Part 3, Quicksilver Method. And you nailed a lot of stuff on the head. I mean, for me, I love the dynamic of the two different characters he's playing in this film. The real Terry Silver, the sadistic, like self-made multimillionaire that's dumping, dumping toxic chemicals wherever he wants, buying off politicians and so forth and so forth. He's made it his mission to get revenge against this innocent teenage kid from New Jersey, Italian kid, and this old, you know, Okinawan karate master who have done nothing wrong at all in their lives, just defending themselves in a sense. And he's like, no, I'm going to ruin their lives. And then we see he's just this, he's like this lovable sleazebag in a sense. It's like you, you love the role he's playing, but then even when he's, we really see this first element of being psychotic when he's in his steam room in his house and he's talking to John on the phone in Tahiti, right? I think he's in Tahiti and he's talking about how he's going to go out of his way to manipulate them, to make Danielson train with him, to abandon Mr. Miyagi. He has this whole thought out yeah. psychological plan. And then it's, you know, is there anything else you want me to do or yeah. make his knuckles bleed Oh, oh, Johnny boy. I like that. I like that a lot. I'm going to use that. (laughs) You're like, oh my God, this guy is insane. And he can switch it on and off like that. And so he'll go and, you know, it's like he seduces Danielson into training with him. And there's those moments where he's this very sincere you know, oh, when he apologizes to Miyagi and Danielson about John Kreese's actions and he died when he's, you know, it's all a fake story. And our sensei from Korea sends his, you know, condolences. And then he walks away and he has that evil smile, right? Yeah. And then same thing in some of the points where he starts to get more sadistic in the training with Daniel, where he's brutalizing him physically. And he's like, fine, if you want to quit, I get it, blah, blah. It's like he's trying to act like this coach that, uh, is disappointed in him. And then he walks around the corner and then he hears Danielson continuing to hit the boards. And then just that same, that evil smile pops up. And then when the reveal is finally made in the dojo, he not only is he just like crazy towards Daniel, then it's like, they could just had him run away and let him go. No, we're going to chase him, bring him back and literally physically beat him. And he's just, that's when we get to see, the, 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 the true psycho nature like established for Miyagi and Danielson. But then even when they go to the tournament at the end, we get him to see him switch back to the, the, the people pleaser. The yeah, karate has taught me honor. And he's looking at Miyagi and Daniel. He's just so fucking twisted. Just, it taught me honor and respect to not and lie. 
<laughs> he's wearing that ascot at the time. Yes. He's, he's uh, you know, he's, uh, it's one of the most fantastic roles. Uh, you could have, again, like a lot of these, these guys we're talking about, particularly from five and up, you can put them in any, you can pull that character out, drop them in another movie. Yep. And it will not only impact the movie that they were in, like it would just be a vacuum of, oh, what are we supposed to do now? Uh, and put him in another movie, just elevate it. It's, it's a fantastic role. Uh, one thing I will say about Thomas Ian Griffith, my, you know, uh, growing up, my parents used to tell me like, you know, your, your Jimmy Cagney's and your other actors back then, they had to be song and dance, but they okay, had to, real quick, know, real quick, real quick. Yeah. I hate to cut you off last you night. Go? We watched, no, we watched oh. the greatest showman with my parents and my exact words were about Hugh Jackman. I said, you know, you don't get a lot of multifaceted singing. You know, he plays one of the most dance, one of the most iconic action roles in Wolverine, and then he's doing a musical like this. I said, you don't have many Jimmy Cagneys anymore. That was my exact okay. thing I said to the, and it was pretty much lost on my stepmom and Jessica, but my dad got it. You know, <laughs> yeah. So no, you, that, that's 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 the point. The, that's the whole point. Like Jimmy Cagney was a song and dance man, and, and anyone who wanted to get into film at that time were all they were also doing radio. They were also doing vaudeville. I don't know. I, I said, Jimmy Cagney, I don't know if he did vaudeville or radio, but that was just the, the format. And he had to sing, he had to dance and he had to act. If you look at some of Thomas Ingram's other films, uh, excessive force, he is essentially a song and dance man. And he's showing, showcasing his jazz piano playing mm-hmm. his acting. And instead of dancing, this guy can kick and do and martial arts. Here's the so problem. He, he's, he is the eighties, nineties song and dance man. People don't realize he wasn't because he's a phenomenal martial artist. He was about like 30 years ahead of his time in the sense of he wasn't a martial artist that could act a little bit or an actor that could do a little bit of martial artists or martial arts. He was both. He was a classically Shakespearean trained actor who was also a lifelong phenomenal martial artist and not just a, oh, I have a black belt in Taekwondo. He was like his kicks the physical performance in this role, which we haven't even talked about, just his martial arts performance is amazing. You see how good he is. He is probably in those first three movies off the top of my head. Uh, the best, I want to say he was the best martial artist featured in those films. Yes. There is the tournament fighter from a couple of the tournament fighters and maybe the first one, but I think Thomas Ian Griffith is the best one featured in all the films, uh, the most authentic. And you see it in his kicks. You can't fake that. That isn't a, an actor that does a little bit of martial arts. That is no, an he, actor slash martial arts, which nowadays we have more of these guys up and coming and stuff because people realize they have to do both. But even still, nobody does it as good as him almost. You know, maybe know. they can do flips, but they can't make their kicks look as beautiful as his. Yeah, and it, it was... Um... Uh, I don't know. It's there's there's uh, even the fight sequence that he has against uh, Pat Morita uh, in the dojo at one point. You could tell his, you could just tell his stature. So we've joked, we've, we've come on, joked before little we, man. Let's yeah. see what you got. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with his fingers. <laughs> so, but we've talked about uh, before about like uh, my my reaction to Charlie's angels and how I didn't really appreciate that film because you can see everybody's center of gravity is like higher up yep. there and mar- real martial artists or people who've trained for many years, their center of gravity is lower. He even just standing, he had, a, he didn't have to like, yep. he didn't have to throw anything at that point. You, you knew when he was in the dojo facing off, 
like, oh, he's he's full on legitimate martial arts. I remember going to going to my like dojo or it was a kung fu temple in long beach at the time we always had the black belt magazine and there was one with thomas ian griffith on the cover it was like the like top 10 actors in, right. in martial arts right now and i like opened it and like he had a whole you know his interview was i'm an actor first martial artist second i really want to be in film for acting that is my calling and you know just reading this i'm like wow this the, he's i i really always appreciated and gravitated towards him because he was he was uh he was trying to follow an artist lifestyle yeah um so uh, I, I totally concur with you putting that number two. I had him there. I dropped him to three just because Melvin Wong put his hand on Wuma's shoulder. Perfect. Perfect. And to be honest with you, I wrote it in that order. And then before we started recording, I changed my mind. So you mean, you, mean shows- you, did, you, did, you did something like this? Exactly. Where there's the, <laughs> the three and the two. Nice. Okay. So now we are at the final one. And as I said, you're never going to guess my number one. Uh, it's your turn though. Okay. So Let's my number one, I actually texted my friend Marvin, who has the song You and Was Gonna Lose. Uh-huh. Uh, and I told him, so his old band, Stunt Driver, came out like You and Was Never Gonna Lose, or is Gonna Lose, sorry. Right. And so your I'm number like, one is David Carradine. Yes. So I said, today, <laughs> You and Was is going to win. Your song is wrong. Because I said, at least on my list, You and is number one, because nice. he is so many of the other villains on this list were molded after him. Uh, whether it is John Shum from Pedicab Driver, what it is, whether it is Richard Norton in in uh, Mr. Nice Guy, uh, so many of these bad guys are molded after what he presented on film. I'm not going to say that Terry Silver is also kind of based on him because I don't know if if Hollywood was watching Hong Kong cinema at that time. But there only is... a few individuals I know of. I know. Jackie was on Spielberg's radar in a sense. I yeah. know Oliver Stone uh, also, but yeah, probably not. Yeah. People weren't watching you. Stallone, too. Stallone. Stallone yeah. is the only ones I know for sure was a Jackie fan. So, I mean, I, who's, who's watching you and who's watching dragons forever. Again, we're picking the same movie. Uh, he's had, he's had a tremendous career. Like I think his, his evilness in Eastern condors might be more, at a higher scale of evil than on the dragons forever, but dragons forever, it's just multidimensional and he gets Plus, to go a little further. Yeah. He gets to deliver lines. He doesn't have any yes. lines in Eastern condors. He just, no, he just <laughs>, laughs and wipes his face. <laughs> I think maybe actually may have like one line or two lines, but that's it. You know, he has a lot more in dragons forever. Yeah. Uh, so he's on this list, obviously just for resume, but if you only had this one role, okay. You could argue that you can take Yoon Wah out of this movie. You can argue that. But the reason why I have him at number one is in this movie, there's almost every single actor who's played a villain in Hong Kong cinema dating back to like the 70s with our our friend, uh, is it James Tien? We talked about a couple episodes ago, which uh-huh. the episode may, which may not be cast, the, right? So even James Tien is in this film. I think yep. that's, he's the, he gets killed pretty In the opening on. sequence, yeah. Opening sequence, yeah. So he... Dick ways in this film. Uh, I mean, if I, if we spend a long time, like going through everybody who's in Philip this film, Kofé, Billy Chow, I mean like, yeah, yeah, everyone shows up. Every, everyone is in this film. And of course, who are you going to cast as the one person that you wouldn't question as the lead? So you could have put you, they could have, Samuel could have uh, cast Dick way as the lead. Uh, and anyone, any, anybody could have been the, the lead villain. Yeah. But the truth is he's the only one that was completely 
absolutely believable. So the fact that he led a team of henchmen who were all lead villains in and of themselves in previous films and did it with full believability is the prototype. You know, we talked earlier about uh, 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 Kian being the, the prototype for the original villain, him being the prototype and then the uh, sort of sort of the bookmark, the earmark of villains in the 80s and 90s. Uh, it's just number one for me. I, I know if we're just basing it on one performance, maybe you could argue that he wasn't as maniacal or wasn't as as cruel or mean as, as John Shum, as Melvin Wong, or as, uh, you know, Thomas Ian Griffith was with Mel, uh, with uh, Terry Silver. But for me, he, he takes the cake. He, yeah. he's the only actor cool enough, nerdy enough, bad enough, and physically uh, intimidating enough to play this role. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's dumping drugs into the, I mean, he's, 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 He's the ultimate baddie because he hides behind the law at times. He talks his way out of issues. He's got charisma. He makes deals. He makes literally the same deal that Terry Silver made with uh, Sean Kanan. Yeah. Uh, Mike Barnes, uh, you know, he basically he forces tells, drugs into Samo. Yeah, that's awful. He shouldn't have done that. Yeah. He's like killed them all. You know, it's. Uh, yeah. yeah. yeah and, and he did it without remorse. Yeah. Uh, so that's my number one. I have no idea who your number one will be unless you give me a, a hint, but I don't know. Okay. So it's it going to be have- argued that this isn't a martial arts film, but, okay. but it's a hundred percent an action film. A hundred percent. It is part of a action series, an iconic action series. And so starting, series- starting from the first film in this series, martial arts was not just featured in the film is actually a martial arts is featured in all four films, but in three out of the four films, it is also uh, either an integral or small part of the plot and is recognized within dialogue. So martial arts plays a huge part through this series, especially uh, in character development and so forth. And in number four, it has uh, a lot. It has what I think is one of the most underrated like ending fight scenes. Are you, are you getting any hints yet? Any hints? I thought for a second you were going to go the Taken route, but then you no. said four films. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, now you did a great job. So yeah. my yeah, number one, my number one. Because he has kind of a flat top, doesn't he? He does. My number <laughs> one is Jet Li as Sing Ku in Lethal Weapon 4. Fantastic. He's, oh. Yeah. So let me tell you why. This was American audience's first introduction to Jet Li. Uh, you know, Jackie was hot, hot, hot. 1995 saw the release of Rumble in the Bronx. After that, we started getting theatricals for a bunch of his uh, previously released films that were kind of from that same era. You know, Rush Hour was being put into production. Uh, and so this, because this is 1997 for Lethal Weapon 4, if I'm not mistaken, I think 97. Uh, let me double check real quick. No, 98. Sorry, my, I always think 97. So therefore, it makes even more sense. This came out after Rush Hour. So, you know, that was the craze. And they're like, anytime something just like Chow Yun-Fat was brought over, right? Uh, Michelle Yeoh was put into the James Bond movie. This was all within two or three years. Like when something's hot in Hollywood, they try to capitalize on it, right? You know, Chow Yun-Fat was brought in for the replacement killers. Michelle Yeoh was brought in for Tomorrow Never Dies. So uh, Jet Li was actually like the last of these ones uh, to be brought in if I'm not mistaken, unless, uh, cause I think replacement killers was 97, either which way. Uh, 
American Audience's introduction to Jet Li. And it, it was a big part of the marketing campaign. He was put on the poster. He wasn't just some, you know, nobody that suddenly showed up. I remember it. My mom used to watch Entertainment Tonight, right? So I remember watching it. I remember seeing stuff on him. Oh, Jet Li, superstar from China, blah, 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 blah. It was like, there was a big deal made out of it. This was, they were trying to market him knowing that he could be a potential uh, Asian superstar a la Jackie Chan. And if anything, when we look at those mentioned individuals, Jackie Chan, Chayun Fat, Michelle Yeoh, Samo with martial law was very close to that time period also, obviously. Who were the two most successful? Jackie and Jet. But it's kind of surprising because Jet Li before this had never played a villain role. Yet his performance in this is like a seasoned villainous actor. And the thing is, Jet is quite often not given enough credit for his acting abilities. For someone that wasn't raised in like, say, the opera or raised in any sort of acting school, from the get-go, even in the first Shaolin Temple movie, I believe he was naturally charismatic. He naturally had great acting ability. And I think he has a great energy he presents. And normally it's done as a protagonist type role, as a good guy. He has that iconic smile. Yet somehow in this role, he was able to reverse that. And for example, that same iconic smile, it's just something in the way he tilts his head, changes the angle of the smile in his eyes, and it becomes one of the most evil, evil smiles and looks in like cinematic history. His getup is perfect, kind of the traditional black suit with a flat top mullet. It's like a, it's not quite a mullet. It's like a rat tail ponytail, which I actually had in the early nineties. Thank you very much. Cause my cousin Eric had one and I thought cousin Eric was the coolest. He's still super cool. I think he might actually listen to this. Hi cousin Eric. Uh, but so he has this great look, right? He's very stone faced. Like whenever the cops are around, you know, like, and in China, you'd be dead. You know, he delivers these very cold lines. And then when we get to see him, I think the first person we actually see him kill on screen is James Liu, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember when I first saw that sequence, I had seen James Liu. I, I didn't know by name at that point, but I'd seen him in a ton of movies. I remember thinking, well, that guy's really good, right? He's fast. He makes James Liu look slow, which says something about how fast Jet Li is. And when he kills him with his little bracelet thing, boom, kills him. He kills, and the reason why he's not a henchman and he is the evil boss, because remember, he's, we find out he's the one that's actually running the show uh, with this Chinese organization. He kills Uncle Benny, played by Kim Chan, right? Uh, and we find out, no, no, he's the one that's actually in control. That's why, because at first it's like, oh, is he a henchman? No, he is the lead villain. The whole point is he's doing this whole thing to free his brother, played by Conan Lee, uh, which people may not realize, uh, from a Chinese prison uh, and doing an exchange at the docks in LA at the, the uh, uh, what would you call it? The trade free zone or whatever, either which yeah. way, when, when he, when we get to see him be his not side, he's not presenting to like the police and in public. And when you get to see him be evil, he gets joy out of it. He like smiles and likes what he's doing when they're telling uh, Eddie Coe, the character, uh, who's brought in to be the forger, you know, like the way he talks to him and like the slight tilt of the head, the evil demeanor, the the rhetoric he uses, like he has no problem, once again, killing women, children, whoever it takes to get his brother. So there's this 
loyalty, this sense of family that comes first for him. Then when his brother gets killed at the end and he fights both Mel Gibson and Danny Glover, that's where we really get to see him shine in his physical performance. And you see the rage, the pure hatred and anger and how top level his skills are, right? Because we have, remember, Mel Gibson's character is a highly trained martial artist, you know, former special forces soldier. Danny Glover is like twice this, his size. And the, the scene is brilliantly choreographed and executed. But we see, and even when he gets like something stabbed through him, he still keeps fighting because he's that evil and crazy and wants revenge so bad. But it's just the subtleness of the way he plays this character that makes it so evil and so great. And the ability of Jet Li as an actor to completely do a 180. And then in his next movie, like when suddenly they were trying to, you know, okay, this was the the introduction for the American audience. Then they give Romeo Must Die where he's, playing the, the soft-spoken, like, good guy character he's known for. And it's just such a forgotten role. And for me, is the most just pure, evil, villainous martial arts role that is subtle yet explosive. It's this dichotomy that just works. So what I like about your list is you've, you've chosen two characters on, on this list that are more modern, we're not talking about anything absolutely right. recent. When Jet Li's character and in uh, Kiss the Kiss the Dragon, uh, the Inspector character, you've chosen these two modern characters uh, that are that have kind of left the camp behind. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I look at my list, I see there there is definitely like obviously I'm I'm celebrating the camp because uh, the villains are sometimes campy and, and help make a film that way. What I remember about seeing Jet Li walk down the stairs and leave the weapon for on the big screen uh, was just absolutely phenomenal. When he just like, you know what, you know what I mean, right? Where he's in the house and he's like, comes down yes. the stairs. Yes. And oh my gosh, I wasn't even thinking about that sequence. Here he is. He's about to burn down a house and kill, you know, this group An of entire people, family, yep. a pregnant woman. And he kicks yeah. a pregnant woman in the head. He kicks Rene Russo like it's no big deal. But you, I, I know exactly when he's coming down the stairs, just. So calm. Yeah. So calm. Oh, and I'm about to murder you all. It's, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great, you're, you're right. When you say people forgot about the role, like I've watched that movie. I saw it on the big screen. I saw it when it first came out and I probably haven't seen it since that scene still is in my head. And also the other scene is when he's stabbed under an underwater and still going, yeah. it's still in my head. He's created an iconic scene for someone who's only seen it once. And yet, you know, when I'm trying to go through the villain list, I forgot about it. And uh, it's a really great selection. And he, he, in many ways, by being willing to play the evil, the bad guy, uh, found found an end run to get into uh, the West, really, yeah. or into Hollywood. And it, it was it was it was great. And and what better opportunity to do that? I mean, we were literally talking about Stingray. You throw a Stingray in another in Silence of the Lambs, all of a sudden he's the psycho. Uh, what better movie than to like be in be in a, a sequel with some of Hollywood's biggest directors? Richard Donner was still directing that one, I believe. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had some fantastic. Joel Silver is producing it, I think. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, you had fantastic cat. You he was just, he you had basically it's basically what I was talking about with Dick Way. You had Samuel, Yumbiao, Jackie Chan, 
and a, and a rug and a, a grenade to beat him. Yeah. And the U.S., you had Rene Russo, you, you had uh, Danny Glover, Mel Gibson, Joe Pesci, Chris Technically, Rock. yeah, Chris Rock's in the finale, too. He gets shot, yeah. remember? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I know technically they're not all trying to beat up on him, but I'm just saying, like, these are, you have a whole crew of good guys, and you have this guy who's so evil, he's even killing evil people. But even the finale, it's like, okay, so they've, They've killed his brother. They find him. He's trying to, Jelly's trying to escape with his brother. He dies on the docks as it's pouring rain. It's such a great setting, such great set design there. And Mel Gibson and Danny Glover are about to walk away and just let it be. They're like, look, you're about to be a grandpa. I'm about to be a dad. You know, we've seen this guy move, you know, no, we're just, we're getting too old for this shit. Right. And they're about to walk away. And then Mel Gibson, though, is like, you know, I really want to know how he did that with the gun when he had disarmed him earlier. Uh, And then he's like, yeah, and he's like, well, I guess we'll go ask him. And like, they, this is like their last hurrah, right? And Jet Li's just yeah. standing there, curious. You see, once again, it's part of this great performance from Jet Li, not just the delivery of his lines, but the physical, emoting things physically that we were talking about before that is an essential part of any great villain role. And he's just, you can tell, he's like, I am, I am not going down without a fight, literally. And it's when they're above water that he gets stabbed. Yeah. And he's still fighting. And then underwater, he's still going. And then it takes being stabbed, being underwater and shot with a machine gun to finally kill this guy. And you believe it, though. It's not like a cheesy, sometimes like an Arnold movie where a dude or, you know, 80s action cinema where a a villain is like still alive. Oh, but no, you you just believe with his pure hatred and anger that it's going to take a lot to kill this guy. Oh, great choice, great list. Uh, I really like your list. And this, this was a lot of fun going down. And I, and I like that outside of four, four people, maybe three people, we had divergent lists, yeah. but nothing that's controversially divergent. Yeah. So it's, it's really nice. Nice going. I loved your list too, my man. I loved your Roadhouse entry. Fantastic. I would, if I would have, oh, you know, it's so funny. As I was looking through, I have Roadhouse up right next to my TV right now. And I didn't look at that case. I saw, okay, I have, where's officer tuba on here. I have, as I said, I was just trying to think of villains and I didn't, I saw the blue side of the Blu-ray. I didn't mm-hmm. see the title. So uh, fantastic entries by you as well. And looking forward to the next one. Sounds great. I'm going to, we've hit the two hour marks. So I'm going to stop recording. Let's stop. See you next time. Bye.